my name is Lillian George. I am the creator of the site Sci-Fi and Scary, and you are listening to Dead Hand Radio. Hi, Lillian. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. I definitely want to talk about your website and how it got started, but could you just give me a little bit of background on you and your interest in the world of books and specifically the genre of science fiction? Okay. Well, um, I've always been a big reader. Always. I think I was reading the newspaper at four, according to my mom. So books have always been an escape for me. And growing up, I definitely wasn't as into science fiction or horror. I think my introduction first came with reading Ender's Game to science fiction and maybe Dean Koontz for horror. But for me, and the reason I do sci-fi and scary is that both genres are valuable and they offer me different things. I read to escape. I'm not the type of person that's going to read nonfiction and just drama and things like that. I want to be transported to an entirely different world. And I think that whereas horror gives me a safe way to release emotions like fear and anxiety, science fiction gives me hope. Science fiction makes me look at a future where maybe we haven't screwed things up as bad as I think that we're going to. And which is kind of ironic considering I tend to lean more towards hard science fiction and military science fiction just because I like action. I like things to blow up. I like end of the world threats, but science fiction is where I go for hope. And so I jump back and forth between the two a lot. One to release my feelings, the other to find safer feelings. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Horror gives you an opportunity to experience feelings like Year. Do you feel the same way about movies as you do about books? Uh, my taste in movies tends to be very narrow and very specific. When I go to see a movie, I want to see people die. I want to see stuff blow up. I want to be swept away in tons of explosions, nonstop actions, stupid lines. And so when it comes to movies, I don't really care if it's science fiction, if it's horror, that's not really what I base on. Like if I look, if I read a blurb and go, Ooh, I bet lots of people are going to die. I'm like, yes, let's do this. Okay. Uh, so you started reading at a fairly young age. I don't, I don't remember when I started reading. I do remember when I started to listen to music. I was probably four or five years old. When do you remember reading something that you actually enjoyed and stuck with you? Oh, Lord, I'm going to date myself. Okay. Uh, I very clearly remember reading the He-Man and She-Ra beginning chapter books. Uh, it didn't take me long to move past those, but those are my earliest memories. Those books just made me go, hey, these are these cartoons that I watched, but now I can read about them, and it's so much better this way. Oh, okay. So you, you do enjoy 
uh, the the depth and richness of a journey through a book more so than watching it in the the visual mediums. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I've pretty regularly argued this out with some friends too. Like movies are entertaining. Like, you know, I've just talked about how much I love them, so I'm not putting them down at all. But movies are also a very flat experience. What you see, what you hear. And it tells you the story in one way, which is the way that, which is through the vision of the director. Whereas with a book, it's the POV. It's and a good, good author can do things that a good director can't do. A good author can give you the bare minimum of details and bring a book to life for you. For me, when I read, it's not reading words on a page. And um, I don't know what this term for it is. I've actually talked to a couple different people, you know, and we tend to read in different ways. For some of them, they have to like process each word and turn it kind of into a visual image where people like me, we start reading and we're there. So for me, reading a book is kind of like an immersive 3D, almost movie experience, except it's richer for me because I know what's going on in the characters' heads. And yeah, I'm not distracted by that shiny bright red car going down the street just before an explosion happens. You know, I'm seeing this in my head. I'm painting it in my head. The author is helping me. The director can't do that. The director says, here's my vision. Go for it. Think what you think afterwards. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, a movie, you're watching someone else's interpretation of the literature. And that's they're basically giving you their take on what it means to them. Some movies have the ability to to layer different ideas, but, you know, and I have to be honest, I am not a big reader because I'm a very slow reader. I wish I could read faster because I'd read a lot more, but I just don't have time and my mind is too, uh, too active. I get what you're saying. It's different for everybody. Um, for me, my go-to is the written word and I, I'm, I'm classifying as that for a reason. Uh, my go-to is the written word. I prefer just straight novel. My child, for example, she can't really, I mean, she's capable of reading the straight words, but it's not her wheelhouse. She doesn't enjoy it nearly as much. She is a graphic novel reader. She will sit down and plow through those things. And and she likes audiobooks. I like audiobooks too. She actually tends to, I think, absorbs more that way. So everybody has, you know, some people are readers. I know how everybody says, you know, a lot of people say, well, everyone's a reader. Theoretically, yes. In reality, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think that's okay. I think what we need to do is we need to move around or need to move away from inferring that the different forms of entertainment that one is better than the other or absorbing information you know definitely yeah and uh, you know I'm it's not that I don't enjoy reading I do I do very much enjoy reading um, what troubles me is when I'm reading and I get a chapter you know um, actually I get a couple pages in and I start thinking about something else and I've read a paragraph or two that I wasn't even paying attention to what I was reading. And I, I was actually thinking about something else. So I have to go back and reread those chapters. And that's where I get frustrated. I put the book down and have to come back to it. So I'm lucky if I could read a full chapter a day. I think that one of the worst things that we have as a, a society have done for or, or I guess I should say against reading, is that 
assigning these texts, especially assigning texts that were popular, God, 50 years ago. You know, kids, you have to teach a love of reading. And going through an English class with all these dry texts that have very little on the surface, because I know English teachers can drill down and make connections, and I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that the kids think about first. Like me growing up, no desire whatsoever to read something like Wuthering Heights. If I had been forced to read that, I don't know the next time I would have picked up another book. Whereas, you know, if you, if we teach a love of reading, if we, we want kids to enjoy it, no matter how old they are, whether you're seven or 17, if you don't enjoy what you read, then you're not doing yourself any favors. And, you know, and again, I'm talking about reading in general. There's obviously, you know, reading for like reading your history book for school or whatever. Assigned reading is one thing, but you gotta be careful about how you do it or you're gonna destroy that. How many people, you know, over the years have told me, oh, well, uh, or not even necessarily told me, but just that I've seen around talking that once they were done with high school or, uh, college, they didn't pick up a book for years because it had ruined it for them. And that is so disappointing. We have all these wonderful books. We have all these stories. We have boundless imaginations. And especially now that the diversity thing is really kicking off, we have all these lenses to see things through. And you have people that I think the average person reads like six books a year. The average American reads like six books a year. And you have people that don't even know it exists because they were put off reading so early. And it's, it's a shame. It really is. Nowadays, kids have so many options of what they can do for entertainment, right? They have movies, mm -hmm. TV, uh, videos online, uh, games, video games. Um, it's, it makes it more and more uh, almost like unattractive to go and pick up a book and actually engage in the task of reading. It seems like so much work to have to sit there and read through a book. Yeah, a book isn't bright and shiny. Well, I mean, the cover might be, but you know, once you get into a book, it's not a bright, shiny, attention-grabbing thing. But if you teach a person at a young age how to, how to enjoy the, the experience of reading, like you said, man, if you, if you tell them to go read some dry, boring, just, you know, something that had, they have no interest in, they're going to hate it. Uh, and they're going to, hey, man, you know what? I, I read my chapters today. Can I go play my video games now, mom? Right? Yep, exactly. Uh, but if you teach the kid and, and you introduce them to, to literature that is something that connects with them this is how my youngest daughter she had she really struggled with reading and um so we got her involved in this like after school course where they they taught reading um and they didn't really teach you like the the mechanics of reading but they introduced them to works of fantasy and science fiction and just other worlds where kids were able to uh, let their imaginations just run wild and she fell in love with reading and now she that girl can read some, 
she she could read like two or three books a week if she want if she had the time to do that. She's a super fast reader now. And that's amazing. Yeah, if you give the right person the right incentive to do something, then they could do amazing things with it. So how many books a week do you read? Uh, not counting this year because COVID 2020 this year has just thrown me completely off. It's destroyed my ability to concentrate. Um, I've only really started getting back into reading uh, in, over the past couple of weeks. Um, on average, when we're not having a global pandemic, I read, I would say seven to 10 books a week. Oh my God. And uh, that's not your day job, is it? No, I just read insanely fast and I love books. So yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's down weeks and there's weeks that are even higher than that. But like, I know for a fact, I think in 2016, I read upwards of 360 books. Uh, and in 2017, I think, again, I was over 300 books. Like I'm that person that actually had to set lower goals for myself because I was reading so much. I was like, no, I need to back this off or I'm going to burn out. So my goal for this year is like 100 books. That, that's still an incredible amount of reading. Do you uh, actually retain all of the content that you consume? Well, I don't think anybody except for people with eidetic memories retain all the content they consume. But with that being said, I can, yeah, like I, I don't mind rereading and it's a good thing because I remember a good bit about books for quite a while after I read them. I guess if you read that fast, it really doesn't matter, right? Because if you, if you, if you breeze through a book in, in a day, you read a whole book in a day. And then a month later, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that book. There were some things in that book that were really cool. Let me go reread it again. And a day later, you reread it again. Mm -hmm. And I've actually done the thing where, like, I've picked up my favorite book because, again, I just talked about liking to reread it. You know, I've had my days where I've picked up my favorite book and I've read it from chapter, you know, from chapter one to the end. And then I've just it to the first page and started reading it again. A good book doesn't have a number of times that you can read at limit. It will sweep you away every time. Do the members of your team uh, all read as much as you do? No. Oh. I, that seems like a very rare ability to be able to read that much. I don't think it's that rare, but it, it's definitely on the rare side. Um, my, see, Tracy, who you might've seen around, she basically just reviews uh, horror, but she's, she says that non-COVID me is faster than her, but she can zoom through the books at an insane rate too. Hmm. And so can Ollie. And Ollie is one of my few team members that will actually review science fiction. So I'm uh, How do you get in contact with people or how do they get in contact with you to, to submit their, their works for your reviews well we have a review form on the website and almost everybody who reaches out to me like I get a lot of contacts through Twitter and I inevitably I tell them go fill out the form uh, we have a pretty good SEO pretty good ranking um, so people find us fairly easily they fill out the form I 
tuck it to my team, say, hey, this look interesting. If it does, somebody takes it. If not, we pass. Okay, cool. So they seek you out, not so much the other way around. Yeah, uh, in the beginning, I think I sought a few people out, but there are, anytime a reviewer chooses to accept books for a review, it's a deliberate choice. Uh, there are just so many ways that you have access to reading material. And again, I am speaking through my lens of lower middle-class white American. I am perfectly cognizant of the fact that my lens is not everybody else's lens and that I am intrinsically privileged in a way that others are not. So I'm aware of that when I make these statements and I'm making them from that place. I'm not trying to speak for everybody. I'm trying to speak for people like me, put it that way. Uh, but there are so many ways that you can have access to materials to read. There, you know, there's like, I read fan fiction for years because where I lived, the library was itty bitty. I was so poor that we didn't have running water until after I moved away. Um, but I had an internet connection and which was dial up and I found a fan fiction website and I read that. So, you know, there's fan fiction, there are libraries, there are always authors offering their stuff for free. There are websites that you can sign up with that you know will send you books to review. You can do all that. You can do. I could read and review every single day for probably five years in a row, and not ever have to not ever accept a review book if I didn't want to. So whenever reviewers you know say, "Hey, we're open for a review," it's a deliberate choice because we want to do it, not because we need to do it. The reading material is there. We're saying, hey, we could be reading the traditional mass market stuff. But what? Let's read your stuff too. Let's give people a chance to experience you. That's cool. And <clears throat> that kind of exposure for uh, authors that don't normally get that the extra exposure that a site like yours would give them uh, could make a difference in so many ways. I mean, um, do you get when, once you do a review for um, for a book? Do you get any feedback from the the authors that have contacted you and and um, just to hear how their how the review has impacted their work? Uh, they don't tend to reach out to me specifically, but I have heard. Um, I reviewed early on. I reviewed a fantasy book. Um, and then just by happenstance, I uh, came across a comment from the guy and just kind of followed it back. And he was talking about how reviews impacted sales and stuff like that. And uh, he said in a Reddit thread that my review of his book had gotten him a hundred sales. Awesome. But in general, I will say, if I can make a plea to authors, please, 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 please don't reach out to reviewers after they review your book. It's fine if you want to like say thank you or whatever, but anytime, once that channel of communication is open, it gets, it gets tricky. So just, just don't do it. Just appreciate it. Maybe just kind of tell them thank you when you promote their, your, their review on social media or something, but otherwise leave it alone, please. Because when people don't leave it alone, 
that's how harassment starts. That's how drama starts. Just don't do it. Fair enough. How do you handle a review of a book that is just, just a horrible book? Uh, well, I give my team a couple of options. One is that, you know, if you're, you know, 15% into the thing and it just sucks so bad, you can't stand it, then you don't finish it. I'm not going to force my team to read something that they absolutely hate. And we don't accept any book for review saying, absolutely, we will 100% review this. We accept a book for review consideration for exactly that reason. Because if you aren't enjoying a book and you're forced to read it, to review it, that review, it ain't gonna be good. With that being said, my team still does, you know, several people on my team still will finish a book that they're not very fond of. Um, and sometimes, and that can be for multiple reasons. Sometimes, you know, the, they have really, really great ideas, but the execution's lacking. So they'll keep reading because they wanna see how the story ends. Or sometimes it's a rage read. We all do it. I don't care what anybody else says. It, it's like a train wreck. Sometimes you pick up a book and it is so shockingly bad that you just need to see how it ends. Um, with that being said, when it comes to the actual review, uh, some of the rules that I give my team, you know, don't get personal. Uh, don't ever review the author. That's not your job. Uh, review the book itself. Uh, be critical, but don't be mean you know, we all understand as readers, we all understand that authors spent a lot of time putting the work into these books. And, you know, especially with independent or self-published workers, uh, authors, you know, they do so much and they try so hard and they, you know, you'll see a lot of people talking about bad reviews and stuff like that. Like reviewers just want to crap on them. No, no, I don't. I have never picked up a book and thought, wow, I'm going to hate this and I am going to just tear it to pieces in a review and this will be so fun. That has never been the way I've thought about a book. I go into every book thinking, I hope this is good. And if it's not, then I talk about the reasons why it's not. If it is, I talk about the reasons why it is. And that's the most constructive thing you can do for, for an author is being honest with the review and not attacking them as a writer or as a person, but attack or not attacking the work, but talking about what you did like and what you didn't like in a fair and objective way. Uh, do you think that there is a, um, a place for authors to pay for reviews? I, I, I that, that came out wrong. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to tell authors where to go to pay to have their books reviewed. I'm asking, is that appropriate for review um, book review sites to charge a fee to review authors' books? I am not going to speak for every reviewer out there, but from my point of view and from the view of several of my reviewing friends, no. Don't don't charge for don't charge for reviews, and authors shouldn't pay for them. If it if there are some spots like um, Kirkus, 
remember the other big one, but Kirkus is the primary one that everyone knows. And, you know, you have to pay a lot to get a review from them. And, and I, I'm not going to speak here as a reader or as a reviewer, but I'm going to speak as a reader. As a reader, seeing Kirkus reviews, like, ooh, a starred Kirkus review means jack to me. It means nothing. So you can pay $400 or whatever to get your book reviewed. And yeah, it might give you a leg up in some places, but that's also money that you could have spent on other marketing that I think probably would have been more effective because a lot of readers, like we recognize Kirkus reviews. We recognize that y'all pay for those reviews too. A paid review to me as a reader does not hold a tenth of the impact that a freely given review does. Because I think anytime that money enters into the equation, some objectivity is lost. Plain and simple. That makes sense. Uh, you are exposed as a as a reader, as a book reviewer, and I'm I'm sure oftentimes you get books either pre-publication or possibly shortly after the books have been published and made available to the public. Uh, so you're getting, you're getting works by authors that um, could be kind of groundbreaking at times. Have you ever come across something that has just made you, made your jaw drop and, and, you know, something that has been so glorious that you didn't even know how to react to it? Uh, I've experienced a couple of those books would, I don't think that I would have identified them at the time as groundbreaking, but, um, a book that I read and it was just, just when I was starting out and the author's name is, uh, Peter Bailey. And I've read since then, I've read another book from him, but this book was called walk in the flesh and was just one of those books that like after I read it I was like oh wow this 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 stays with me and I'm, it's got some heavy topics it's got you know rape molestation domestic violence in it um it's about this guy who actually you know I'll just read a little bit of a blurb Terrace killed his wife in the aftermath of a terrorist attack, Neil is given the chance to serve his country by serving up revenge. He soon becomes England's premier spy and assassin. As a man, he was unpleasant, dangerous, and of little use. As a cyborg, he is unpleasant, very dangerous, and extremely useful. And just from that, it, you kind of get an expectation of what the book is about. And I think I remember, you know, reading the blurb and thinking, this could be okay but it could also go horribly wrong. But this dude just blew it out of the water. Um, you know, like a snippet of my review says, uh, Peter Bailey does a fantastic job in Walk in the Flesh in more than one respect. One part that stood out to me was how well he communicated the feelings of women in foreign countries being systematically oppressed as those countries regress into religious rule. I wasn't expecting to find that in this book. Also, I absolutely hated the main character, and yet I was drawn to his story. And I think that's a pivotal thing. Very few authors could 
write a main character that you just, you hate and yet make you want to keep reading. And that's where this book really stood out for me. It was just like, I hate this dude. I want him to die, but he can't die before I finish the book because this is a good book. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, any other, uh, any other works that stand out for you like that? Uh, Pet by, it, oh God, I'm not sure how to say the name, I, their name. I think it's Akweki, Amezi. It's A-K-W-A-E-K-E. Amezi -E. um, is a non-binary individual like myself. And you read the blurb for this book and it's just, it's, fantasy it's it's middle grade or maybe middle grade slash young adult I don't remember exactly but it's you know the character is the main character is trans it is not set in America uh it deals again and I think this is a recurring thing for me is it deals with violence uh assault um and this is a really important book just because the thing is that it goes around the idea of monsters. There are no monsters anymore in this city, like, but monsters is metaphorical. Monsters are people who, who rape, who assault, who abuse, those are the monsters. And, you know, the parents in this city are all just like, yeah, and Lucille, no, you know, we're free of all this. There's no problems, you know, we've, We've eliminated all that stuff. No more children suffer. And that's just not true. And, um, okay, it is a young adult debut, actually. Uh, a quakey asks difficult questions about what choices a young person can make when the adults around them are in denial. So many children need this book. God, I needed this book. If I had read this book when I was 14, 15, it would have changed so much for me personally. You, pet is not a book that you read for pleasure. It's not a pleasure read. It, I don't see how it could possibly ever be a pleasure read. It's rough. It, it, it made me cringe. It made me want to look away. It made me grip my teeth and feel sads that I'd pushed away for years. It ripped my heart to shreds. And then somehow she, or not she, I'm sorry, they, uh, they came back around and they planted hope where they ripped me to shreds. And that was just like, this book, like if I could shove it into people's book bags for or, uh, Christmas gifts, get this book, read this book, let your kids read this book. Understand that as parents, when you tell someone, when you tell your kid, there's no monsters, monsters don't exist, you're lying. Monsters exist. Monsters are all around us. And just because they don't have teeth and claw doesn't make them any less horrible monsters. I Am Pet is about children having to stand up for themselves, for each other, to face those monsters when none of the adults are listening and go, that's a monster. This is what they're doing. This is wrong. And the bravery that takes, and kids, that's, that's, not, that's not uncommon. There are so many kids who have to speak up because the adults aren't listening to them. Kids that, you know, have to find the courage to say, my dad is hurting me or my mom is hurting me or my uncle is hurting me. They have to do that. They have to, sometimes they have to stand completely alone 
and yell and scream for somebody to help them. And sometimes they don't get any help at all. And there's lots of kids out there like that. And those kids need this book. Parents need to read this book. They need to read it and to understand what they're doing and what they're not doing. You can never close your eyes to evil because evil will always be there. It will always regrow. And sorry, end of my soapbox now. <laughs> that was uh, very passionate. Thank you for sharing that. When you read a book that really captivates you and draws you in, you obviously have a platform that people go to to find works that they're interested in, books that they're interested in reading. Or how do you identify the different works into subcategories? Uh, personally, I just go off of what like Goodreads and Amazon and stuff say. If they if they classify a book as post-apocalyptic, then I'm going to tag it as post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic books, uh, you know, zombie books, whatever the appropriate tag is. That's what I go for. I, I let other people tell me what they think their book is. But if somebody was visiting your website to find a book like that, that they wanted to uh, get your take on. Then they would just type in up at our search bar at the top. Um, if you type in zombies, for example, on the site, you get 204 search results. Okay, cool. So you don't have to like identify every category that's in there. If somebody's looking for something, they just type it into the search and they'll be able to pull it up. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would really like to talk about? In science fiction and horror, both. Though I think there are more examples in science fiction. We look at the past as almost untouchable, you know, and We don't, I don't understand why we can't seem to move past that. Um, you know, uh, speaking for horror, um, I guess maybe because in some ways it's simpler uh, to talk about it. So many people have a Stephen King obsession. I, I do not. So, you know, just making that clear, I don't particularly care for the man's writing. But one of the, the things that bothers me is that, you know, I see people wanting to write like Stephen King, wanting to, you know, be the next Stephen King, comparing themselves to Stephen King. Stephen King's been writing for decades. He has his style. He has his ideas. Some people think he's very, very good at what he does. Uh, uh, personally, you know, I like his ideas and I love the movie adaptations of his books. I just hate his books because I, I, I don't, like if I'm trying to figure out how the world ended, I really don't care about your third cousins, uncles, grandfathers, ulcers, that type of thing. Um, and so, but so many people still worship him and it's like, no, look at the new stuff. Look at what we have right now. Look at some of the groundbreaking works from authors like uh, N.K. Jensen, uh, Nettie Okorafor, I apologize. I've never actually heard their names pronounced out loud. So I'm not sure I'm saying them right. Uh, Nettie Okorafor with Benti. Benti was amazing. There's so much stuff out there that isn't this one guy's definition of horror. And if you try to limit yourself to that person or try to, you know, just keep him head and shoulders above everybody else, you're not doing anybody any favors. But, you know, with science fiction, what bugs me more is if you ask people to name you science fiction books, they're going to name the stuff that everybody knows you know, giants whose shoulders we stood on. Yeah, okay, they're always going to be that. But that doesn't make them perfect. Doesn't make them infallible. We can't, we really need to get past the 
part where we look at famous authors and hero worship them without taking anything else into context. Like, um, like I asked, who do you think will be the, the giants that uh, the generations that are writing now, who do, who will they look back to? And one uh, panelist said, well, I don't know, I don't read any modern stuff. Then how are you still shaping science fiction if you're that stuck in the past, you know? Uh, another panelist said, oh, well, uh, I just don't get this new stuff, you know, like this flash fiction and stuff. There's just, there just doesn't seem to be any plot. There doesn't seem to be any point. And again, how are you supposed to be, you were a seminal influence once, but if you're not keeping up with the time, if you're not reading modern work, if you're not out there continuing to change as times change to support other authors and things like that, then you're doing nobody any good. Yes, the book that you wrote in 1954 is still a decent read, but guess what? There's better stuff out there or stuff that's just as good now. You can't just continue to look back at books and hold them up as a shining example of what something is. Harry Harrison's Death World, for example, I love that book. It is stupid. It is pulpy. It is unbelievable. And it's filled with horrible attitudes towards women. And it's a fun book. It is, I love it. But that's not, if I'm talking to, you know, a 20-year-old or a 15-year-old even, 15, 20-year-old that is looking for science fiction to get into, I'm not going to tell them Death World. I'm going to tell them something modern, something relevant to them. We can stand on the shoulders of giants, but we need to not idolize them. We need to be able to accept that, hey, some of these people aren't growing like they should. Some of these people ain't doing as they should, and that's okay. It's okay to criticize them. It's okay to critique. It's okay to go, you know what? Yeah, your books were really good back then. And yes, I acknowledge that you changed the way we view things, but guess what? More doors are opening now. I'm going to pay attention to those doors. That's a good point. Uh, and that goes along with a, a question that I, I've been asking the people that um, I invited on for this sci-fi series that I'm doing. Uh, and that is, I'm going to ask you, how does the future of the world of science fiction look to you? Interesting. We are, there's, there's so much stuff that's coming out now. Uh, and again, I'm going to mention the diversity thing that's really starting to take off finally, like it should. Um, you aren't, there are some goes back to lenses and um picked up the term from like feminist class so two you can take not even two but you can take any number of people and give them a story to write and their backgrounds their influences their race their culture it's going to influence how they tell that story now i'm going to reference Nettie Okorafor again and just so many others what we are looking at now is a time when diverse viewpoints are really starting to flood in and that is going to change so much. Not, because, not just because people are finally getting to see themselves in books, 
And so as things change, as new lenses come in, we're seeing all of this and it's changing the face of things and people just need to open their minds and open their eyes and it's a whole new world out there. Talk a little bit more about the, the, the things that make science fiction, science fiction, you know, characters and the, the problems that they have, you can take them out of a science fiction story and transplant them into a horror story or into a romance, not well, maybe not romance, but you know, you can transplant them into different genres and it will still be effective. But what makes science fiction science fiction? God, that's actually a hard question because you have to consider that there's two main subgenres. There is hard sci-fi and there's soft sci-fi. Science fiction to me is either set in an alternative now or a future. Uh, if it is set in this now, but it has advanced technology or something like that, then it would still qualify as science fiction. Um, I think what makes science fiction science fiction is the vision of the authors who use technology that we have or we are likely to have soon and build out from there. Uh, whether it's uh, new locations or it's, uh, you know, warp speed technology. Setting, I think, plays a bigger role in science fiction than it does in a lot of other genres. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So in, in that sense, uh, what... Have you seen anything in the the many, many books that you've read that has touched on um, like innovative technological advancements that maybe for the first time you you're reading something that you've never heard about or you've never seen that it may exist now, but you just never never heard about it until you read this particular book? Kind of. Uh, the first book that popped into my mind when you started speaking, uh, the name of the book is The Punch a Scrow by Tal M. Klein. Uh, it, it wasn't a new concept. Um, the, the concept that they were dealing with was teleport teleportation. But the spin that he put on it when the big reveal happened and you learned how this teleportation works, it just had me like sitting back in my seat like, oh, he crap. How did he think of that? What, what, it, it blew my mind. And I'm like, holy crap, this is, I could see this. And Jesus, how would you handle this? And it was a, I didn't particularly enjoy the reading experience uh, because it was a book with footnotes and some things can pull me straight out of a book. And one of them is footnotes. And I don't know why it's a me thing. It's not the book. So it was a really a hard book for me to enjoy but it was so cool in some ways like that teleportation thing that rebuild which I don't want to rebuild because I want people to actually read the book and find out for themselves it, it was just like I have read hundreds of science fiction books and never ever ever seen somebody say well this is how that happened and I was just like well okay I'm good cool and that those those are the the 
the things that I like to hear about when somebody comes up with a new concept or, you know, just, um, it, it just changes the game. And I recently, I'll share uh, uh, one that I recently discovered. And it's not new. It's been out for a couple of years, actually. It's, uh, you know, have you watched Star Trek Discovery? I don't think I have, actually. I'm not a big uh, Star Trek slash Star Wars fan. Okay, the, so the new Star Trek Discovery series, I think it came out in 2017. It's been out a few years. Um, I could be wrong about that. It might be even newer than that, but I just started watching it. And they have a new... Uh, you know how in in all the movies they have warp drive so you know you could get up to warp 10 or whatever or, you know i don't really know yeah. how fast they go but they use warp so in this in this series they developed this new type of warp um technology that uses a uh, it's called spore drive Okay, and it was, they can instantly transport from one point in space to any other point in space as long as it's charted. So it's like instant, like dematerialize, rematerialize, but they don't even do that. They just pop from one point to another point now. Uh, to, to, in my mind, that is a, a step above what they have always um, had the ability to do with warp drive by traveling from one place to another and taking, you know, traveling light years within hours. Well, now they can travel light years instantly and they do it with this new type of technology called the spore drive. Um, now I won't give away the, the, the details of how the spore drive works because it's a really key point in the story. But it's really interesting the way that they, um, the way that they reveal how this spore drive works and consequences. You know, the technology has consequences that they didn't quite anticipate. And then they have to figure out a way to deal with the, the consequences of using that technology. Because it, you know, the it's it's so game changing. They have to use it in order to. Um, it's like the invention of the atomic bomb, right? We mm-hmm. we we were at a point where we had to use it, and thankfully we've never come to that point again. Um, but in in this uh, scenario. They have to continually use this technology and deal with or figure out a way to either circumvent or deal with the consequences that using the technology has. So I thought that mm-hmm. was just a, a really new way of looking at things. Plus the visual effects of the new series is amazing. I cannot recommend that series enough. That's cool. You know what you brought to mind though? Uh, Speaking of what the definition of science fiction is and, uh, you know, what we see and things like that, with it being an extrapolation of current or uh, imagined technologies, have you noticed we're not 
really advancing that much anymore technolo uh, technology wise it doesn't seem like it like it seems like we're refining things that we already have rather than inventing new things we're polishing it but we're not like when was the last time that something new in our in actual reality like when did we take another step forward oh uh, yeah i agree i mean so to use a good example of that is the cell phone right mm -hmm. so we, we've had cell phones since the late 80s and they used to be a great big brick that you'd walk around and actually carry around like a purse because it was heavy um you know and it's evolved over time but it's still the same technology and it it, it does the same thing that it's always done 40 years later um you know when are we, when are we going to invent a new form of communication that doesn't require a handset that you put up to your head and talk to somebody uh, on the other side of the planet now i mean it's amazing technology but uh how much has it really advanced other than in, it's gotten improvements incrementally over that period of time but it's it's still the same concept i i get what you're saying um it's been a long time since something new like that has come along i mean uh you take a look at 3d printing that's relatively new i mean it's been around almost 20 years now maybe even longer than that um but uh 3d printing is a technology that's uh it's advancing pretty rapidly and you know sooner or later everybody is going to have the ability to to pick up a 3d printer and have the ability to 3d print food <laughs> you know um the 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 biotech industry is starting to use 3D printing to uh, print different body parts and different organs. Uh, you know, there, there are technological advancements that we're experiencing, but what happens is you hear about something new and then 20, 30 years goes by and the whole time they've been working on that stuff, it just hasn't been, it hasn't been talked about in, revealed unless you're you travel in those circles but then 30 years later they come out with something and whoa that's that's totally new never heard of, of that um so i think we are making advancements we just it's either so slow you know and takes so much time for those advancements to um to to come to pass that it seems like it's not happening. But if you compare what we have today to what we had 20 years ago, I think there have been some pretty major advancements. No, I'm not saying that there haven't been advancements. There has, but I mean, taking the 3D technology, for example, you can trace that back to regular printing. We regular printed, we saw the possibilities and we went for it. And it, it actually is something that I would consider you know groundbreaking but it, it still has like you can follow it back you can say oh this you know this came from this this came from this this idea came from this but when was the last time we had something that just was was out of left field was just a completely new like 
we think this is possible so let's go do it like though i get what you're saying i get what you're saying and my answer to that is probably the invention of fire or the discovery of fire of how to create fire um because every invention every technology that we have is an innovation of something that already exists that's you know, true you, enough yeah you combine two two ideas together to create a new idea and um you know there's there's very few times throughout our history like um uh certain vaccines when when vaccines were discovered that was you know world changing um there there are moments in in history where things like that have have happened and they are very rare because they're so world changing i mean they are uh, what's it are they paradigm shifting technologies and i think if yeah. we had that all the time I, man i i think our world would be in utter chaos because we'd have oh, yeah yeah, we'd have paradigm shifts every other year and people wouldn't know what to do. That makes me think my conspiracy mind, see, I got a little bit of a conspiracy mind. That makes me think some of that technology is suppressed for the purpose of keeping things at a status quo. Uh, I, I don't necessarily, I have never necessarily considered myself a conspiracy theorist, but my instant response to that is, well, duh we're too stuck on you know the people that are empowered they like things the way they are they don't want to change them and if you know the people who have the money who have the power don't want to change things they're going to make sure that things don't get changed because it doesn't serve them so it doesn't matter that you you know a certain percentage of the world is in absolute poverty and we could absolutely fix that uh, you know i don't doubt that the technology is out there now but we're not going to fix it because we like to be seen as the do-gooders. You know, some people, that's a blanket statement, but some people like to be seen as the good do-gooders. Let's go in and help them get through this patch. And then when they have another rough patch, we'll go in and we'll help them get through this patch. But we're not, but we need them to need us. And then you have the people in power that are like, whatever, I'll throw money at this occasionally and make it look like I'm doing something. But no, I, I like, the fact that people come to me it's a power trip and so yeah absolutely i think we do have technology that is being repressed we could talk about that um until you know blue in our face uh and i think we we see uh, pretty close to have the same opinion about it um but i i would like to move on and i i think it's a pretty good place for us to close this out because we've been but we've been at it a little bit over an hour. I think I would just uh, like to give you an opportunity to tell people how can readers find you and, and how should they connect with you also writers? Okay, well, readers uh, and writers both can find us at www.scifiandscary.com. We are also on Twitter and on Instagram. I am the primary controller for both Twitter and Instagram. You will hardly ever find me on Instagram, but if you ever want to talk to me on Twitter, feel free to reach out. Uh, be forewarned. I want to talk to you. I don't want you to pitch your book to me. Uh, that can come later. But if you reach out to me right away, trying to pitch your book, I'm gonna be like, man, no, thank you. Um, so that's where you can find us, reader or writer. And we are, 
in 2020, we decided to do a focus on diversity and we are hoping to continue that. We really like giving a platform to the voices that don't always get the platform that they need to. And in February of 2021, we are looking to re release our first anthology. Uh, it's a charity anthology, uh, very little science fiction in it, unfortunately, but it is called Twisted Anatomy. It is an anthology of body horror. So if you like movies like The Thing, The Fly, if you like uh, to read things that will disgust you, then I definitely recommend taking a look at this book. Um, when it comes out again, that's Twisted Anatomy. And uh, we have an ever-growing team. We're always looking for people to join our team. It is a hobbyist thing, so no pay, unfortunately. But if you want to come write for us, if you want a bigger platform than what you currently have, especially if you're a diverse reviewer, hit us up. We would love to have you. All right, Lillian, thank you. I appreciate you coming on Dead End Radio. And it was interesting to hear your perspective on things. Thank you for having me on. It was great.